Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Jub. Uh, sorry for this episode coming out so late. We had a major technical issue with my side of the audio, where the file itself got corrupted and my audio became irredeemable. So what you're going to get here, we sort of did something similar like this before when I lost audio. Well, I'm gonna, I edited this sucker, so Genhard has a little bit of a soliloquy here. Kind of takes it on his own until my audio comes back and I jump in. Uh, it's still, I think, a pretty good episode. I hope you all enjoy it. I'll see you on the other side. Thanks. Hey, hey everybody, how y'all doing? Happy fucking New Year 2021. Hooray. I know the stereotypical thing is to be glad that 2020 is over and to say, well, it can't be worse than that. But, uh, fuck that. Don't say that. Don't tempt 2021 to be worse. Damn it. It will try. I remember people said this about 2016. <laughs> Although there are two big factors in uh, both of those years. But anyway, it, it's been a little bit since the last episode. Uh, even more than the new year, I'd say uh, the delay is my fault this time. <laughs> um... I, our movie this week is Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, uh, Hayao Miyazaki's second film, and uh, in the lead up to it, I was like, oh, maybe I should read the manga, uh, and I was like, let's let's hold off a couple days while I read this manga, uh, very legally, uh, <laughs> but um, it there doesn't seem to be a lot of ways to read it uh, quickly. Uh, quote-unquote, legally, unquote. (laughs) So I will be taking a look at that, but uh, I gotta wait for it to ship to my house. I'm buying some deluxe Miyazaki art. Big, two big, thick volumes of Nausicaa manga. Uh, We're just gonna go in. We're just gonna go full in and hope that it's worth it. Um, even if it's just a straightforward adaptation of Nausicaa, which I already know it, it is not, uh, it will be worth it. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that later, and and obviously that movie as a whole, as we get further into our show. So, so uh, I, I don't know if I've talked about Bricks before on the podcast, but I guess to give you a primer... Uh, Bricks is a brick break game that you've like probably played in your life, like on your phone or something. You know, just the classic, like you got the pong paddle at the bottom of the screen, and then colored bricks at the top of your screen, and like a ping pong ball that you bounce up to hit the bricks. Uh, simple, classic game that is, no matter what, kind of fun just because the concept of it is good in general. Like, it's hard to fuck that up. 
cloning it a million times, it will still, at the very least, be functional in that purpose. And that is what the Bricks franchise relies upon. Uh, so there's Bricks, Bricks 2, and Bricks Head to Head, which I guess is Bricks 3 for all intents and purposes. Um, the key difference between a normal Brick Breaky game and Bricks is uh, Bricks's backgrounds, which are big, big titty anime thoughts. And if if it's not a big titty anime thought, it's an image that you would see on like the share zone of like a like a big skeleton man with a big gun on a motorcycle. You know, something that like you'd see like at a flea market with like, you know, I don't take no shit written on it, you know, <laughs> something like that. Those are the only two flavors of level. In bricks, and obviously, I, I assume that like the the intent of the developers is people buying it want to see the big titties or the badass images. So covering them with the bricks makes the game work because you want to hit the bricks and remove the bricks from blocking the view of the titties and or skeletons. So that's how bricks functions. Um, <laughs> I have played and platted uh, Bricks and Bricks 2. Um, they are very cheap games, and I love getting cheap garbage platinum trophies. So that is mainly my, the appeal of the series to me. <laughs> I, I would say that they're not the worst games I've ever played. They're fine, but that's because they're Brick Breaker games, and... Those are kind of hard to fuck up immensely. They try to shake up the formula a little bit because you can get, like, power-ups that give you, like, multi-ball. Or, like, your ball becomes a big spherical flame ball that breaks through everything in its path relentlessly. Or you could just shoot the bricks for a limited amount of time. Uh, you know, various things like that. There's even bosses. They're like little floating skulls that you have to hit. And, like, when you hit them, they go, like, with, like, a stock sound effect. Uh, it, it's complete nonsense. So the new one, Bricks Head to Head, is the first multiplayer Bricks game. Apparently, you can play with people online in that game, but I never tried. Uh, only one trophy required multiplayer. I had to play around with somebody with a second controller. I did that, and then I was done treating the game as a multiplayer game. Basically, you have two bricks levels on your screen at all times, one of which will be controlled by a second player or an AI, and one of which is controlled by you. Basically, you choose a character, and the character is a big-titted anime girl. Uh, that is the character that will be your background, and then the AI will choose another character. And getting the trophy, the plat trophy, was... About the same as getting the other Bricks games plat trophies. Uh, I, I think this one was a little easier, although, you know, because you had to do less. There was maybe, like, something like 40 levels, as opposed to, like, like Bricks 2 had, like, over 100, and it was kind of monotonous, because Bricks 2, uh, much like... 
<laughs> Red Dead Redemption 2, uh, decided to include the entire uh, map from the first game, uh, or in Bricks 2's case, all the levels from the first game. What a comparison to make, comparing Bricks 2 to Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, they're 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 stupid. They're very stupid. I can't really recommend them to anybody uh, unless you like don't have access to the internet and can't look at anime titties any other way. Um, if this is the only way, then yeah, I recommend Bricks too <laughs> and, and Bricks and Bricks head to head. I I didn't mind playing them. I mean, it's whatever. I've played worse games to get a plat trophy. It's like getting a. It's like getting a. It's like if you really like cheeseburgers, you will get a burger from McDonald's, even though that is, like, the junk food equivalent of the food you like. You know what I mean? Like, if you really like pizza, you will get a $5 pizza from Little Caesars, and you will eat it. But it it will not be the best pizza you've ever had by any stretch of the imagination. Uh... So that's it. It's the game of the year for 2020 for me. Yeah, so um, I'm not going to talk about GTA Online at all. I'm going to talk about GTA 5 itself. Uh, I think because the online was so bad, like just one day I was just like, all right, I want to play something in this map, but I don't want to play any of the online options that are available to me right now. Uh, I'm just going to start a new game from scratch. I have 100%ed and more this game back in 2016. But I was like, you know what, fuck it. And then I started playing it, and I'm sucked in, and I'm like 50% complete right now. Uh, Over the past, like, week, it has kind of consumed my life again a little bit. It's like, you know, it's just like, it, it is what it is. It's a fantastic well-crafted game with great fun missions, uh, hilarious side content, and I'm doing all of it again. And I could be playing a game that I haven't played yet, but uh, here I am. And (laughs) I think that just says how good GTA V is in comparison to GTA Online, which I only felt like I was playing out of, like, some... (laughs) <laughs> some sense of, like, I need to complete this more than I want to play this. Like, I don't feel the need to 100% GTA Five because I've done it, but I'm going to do it anyway just because I'm having fun doing it, uh, which means it's a good game <laughs> and not GTA Online for, for comparison. Which I do not want to do everything in. I would rather die. Uh, (laughs) um, I I will say that if you're going to 100% any GTA game, that's the one to pick. Because it's really lax on what counts for 100%. Uh, Minor spoilers for a seven-year-old game here. But... um, (laughs) basically nothing you do as Michael or Trevor counts besides story missions towards 100% because the end of the game gives you the option to kill one of them. 
there's the kill Michael ending, the kill Trevor ending, and then the actual canon ending where all three protagonists live. Um, confirmed canon, by the way, by GTA Online, which takes place like after. Uh, well, now it takes place after. Depending on what mission you're playing, GTA Online takes place before or after GTA 5. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, so basically their solution to that was they didn't want to lock anybody out of getting 100% by choosing the wrong ending. So just literally any side quest that is exclusive to Michael or Trevor, you do not have to do. Uh, and not only that, there's a shit ton of stuff you don't have to do. Like, there's 50 stunt jumps, but you only have to do 25. There's 50 bridges you have to fly under, but you only have to do 25. Uh, there's like four or five sets of collectibles in the game, but there's only two that you need to do. It's really weird. Before we get to the main thing, I'm going to just briefly mention, I'm not going to talk about it a lot, but uh, I started reading Dune. I, I don't know yet, but it's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I've been reading like one chapter a day. Uh, I, obviously, I got kind of enthused about Dune because there's the movie coming out uh, this year that was supposed to come out last year. Uh, like every movie ever, uh, <laughs> it got delayed. Uh you know, it's it's a really weird read, and, and like, at, at least in terms of, like, you know, it's been a long time since I've read a book that, like, has as many unfamiliar terms in it. Like, like maybe not since, like, when I was in high school trying to read Lord of the Rings. You know what I mean? Like, it's like... I haven't read a book in a long time that had such an expansive world in it that, like, it required multiple appendixes or appendices, however you're supposed to say that, in the back of the book uh, and a glossary of terms. Like, because it's very likely that, like, you're going to need that glossary while you're reading Dune if you have no familiarity with the universe. Because, like, you know, they'll say something like Muad'Dib, and I'm like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> so, like, you get going back and look up the word. It's like, you know. Uh, and, you know, it's funny, because, like, I'm sure there's some people who, like, have read Dune and have read the other five books by Frank Herbert. And then, like, you know, maybe even some of the, like, I think, God, there's probably, like, 20 of them by now, books by his son. Uh, <laughs> like there's a lot of there's a lot of Dune stuff. Uh, it's it's a huge franchise to not have a proper film adaptation. Still, weird. I'm sure there's people that go back and read it and understand every word just because they're familiar with the universe. But like, for me, just now trying to get into it, it's like kind of impenetrable without like doing a little bit of homework. Thankfully, that homework's in the back of the book. It, it kind of makes me think of, like, you know, if if I knew nothing about, like, Star Wars and I tried to, like, read a piece of Star Wars fiction, uh, how lost would I be, you know, when they say stuff like Jedi and Sith and Clone Wars? <laughs> I, I, I guess it would be the same thing. I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? What are any of those things? Uh, and, and it's kind of cool to see, like, you know, the obvious things that people took 
from this because it came out in the 60s before Star Wars and before a lot of things that just was like, I want to be Dune as well <laughs> and took a lot of, you know, and I don't think it's any accident that like, you know, Star Wars starts on a sand planet, you know. This paperback I got is like 850 pages long, not counting the appendices in the back. Uh, and I'm like maybe 100 pages in now, and I, I feel like the story has yet to actually get going. But I, I think that's because they have to set up so much early on. So, I mean, I hesitate to say I like it because... Nothing's really fucking happened yet, but I'm also reading it sort of slow, because, I don't know, for whatever reason, whatever reason I told myself uh, I'd just read a chapter a day and leave it at that. If if it grips me, like, late in, and I'm like, well, I gotta know what happens next, then that's how I know it'll be a good book. Uh, we're not at that point yet. At this point, it's like, alright, what's going on? Okay, I don't know what a, I don't know what a Harkonnen is. <laughs> Let's look up what a Harkonnen is. Uh, oh yes, an all mother. Yeah, okay, yeah, all right. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm even saying the right terms. It's you know, it's just like something that looks like nonsense word vomit to the uninitiated, which is you know, I respect that in a way because he crafted like a big whole universe. Uh, to make a story in. That's not an easy thing to do. Which so speak, Speaking of which, I guess the, uh, creating a whole big universe on your own, uh, we could talk about our movie of the week here. Hell yeah. Uh, this movie's fucking great. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This isn't a Friday the 13th movie, I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, um, I have seen this one before, um, which... Uh, I think for the next several weeks, uh, that may not be the case, but, uh, we'll see. Oh, you know, the next one would be Castle in the Sky, right? I have seen Castle in the Sky. I just don't remember a lot about it. Um, but admittedly, I didn't, I remembered less about Nausicaa, and, uh, rewatching it was a great experience, because, like, you know, it, I, I think I enjoyed it more this time than the first time, because now I kind of have, like, more of an understanding of his other works, Miyazaki's and like more of an understanding of his motifs and his general themes and the things that he likes to put into his movies um, well, I think when I first watched Nausicaa I think I like was like alright I'm gonna watch every Miyazaki movie and this is the one we started with if you're doing that I could see I could see still liking it but maybe enjoying it less like I think you gotta start with one of his better movies not that this is bad this is really good but like he has movies that are way better than this which is impressive yeah in many ways it's kind of like a dry run for like princess mononoke later uh like a lot of a lot of the same themes and uh kinds of conflicts as well so this is his second film released in Japan in 1984. Uh, it's based on a manga uh, of the same name, also written and illustrated by Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, the the manga story is much more expansive than the films, 
I, I've been led to believe. Um, and this is kind of because it, it, so it was released at a irregular pace from 1982 to 1994. So while Miyazaki was making four other movies, he was intermittently releasing Nausicaa manga. And as such, I believe at a certain point, the the events of the film where the film ends do happen, but then it just keeps going, and there's some other stuff. And uh, once I read that other stuff, I'll tell you what it is, because <laughs> I don't really know. I don't know what else they could really... There's a lot more world-building they could do, for sure, and like explaining a lot of the other stuff in this world, because it's, it's a pretty big universe he creates here, all things considered. But he kind of only tells the story of, like, one little area of it. And there's a lot of, like, the past of this universe that doesn't get explored very much. Because Nausicaa's... Y- you wouldn't maybe guess, looking at the art of it on the outset, but it's post-apocalyptic. Uh, by, like, thousands of years, I believe, right? So, like, the, the films he releases in between uh, finishing starting and finishing the Nausicaa manga, are some of the most lighthearted in his career, from what I can tell. Like, you got, like, uh, Totoro and Kiki, Porcaroso. Um, and I, I think that's, like, I, I mainly because Nausicaa is kind of dark, tonally. Um, so maybe while he was writing this dark manga, he was like, I, the movies I make will be more lighthearted. And I think that's how you get to Princess Mononoke after he's done with it, because that one's a little dark thematically. And then it kind it kind of just goes all over the place after that point. <laughs> um, but it's interesting to see. So a little backstory. He was uh, prompted to create a film based on the manga he was writing, uh, by the publishers of the manga. Uh, this was an idea that Miyazaki was initially kind of reluctant to explore, but he agreed as long as he could direct the film. And, and I, I'm, I'm glad somebody told him, hey, this would be good as a movie, because who knows how long it would be till we got another Miyazaki movie, if not, because like for all intents and purposes, Castle of Cagliostro was well-received, but did not do as well as they hoped, the, the the Lupin people. So it was kind of a question mark what would happen with Miyazaki's career at that point in time. Because this, this is still before, even though it's usually counted as one of the Studio Ghibli movies. Is it Ghibli or Ghibli? I actually don't know. Ghibli Ghibli's Studio Ghibli's uh, <laughs> was uh, but you know this is usually counted as one of the Ghibli films but it was before that studio existed that studio comes about as a result of this movie which which uh, which means that you don't have you, you have a different animation studio making this you have um, Topcraft 
that's their name, uh, who was uh, chosen by Miyazaki's partner from his work on Lupin the Third, Isao Takahata, who also would uh, be like you know the the second wing of Studio Ghibli in the coming years, making you know like stuff like Grave of the Fireflies and and, and a tons of other stuff. Um, they chose this small animation studio who they could get cheap enough, but were confident that like they would make good stuff. Um, and they had the tall task of animating this entire film in, in, in just nine months, which is insane with how beautiful it looks really. So, uh, so some major inspirations that, uh, Miyazaki had in his creation of Nausicaa, include but are not limited to uh, I didn't write all of them down uh, <laughs> is basically what that means uh, we got the Odyssey uh, whose princess is also named Nausicaa by the way so there's a literal inspiration but also like I think the thematic like you know an Odyssey, the Odyssey is one of the most influential works of fiction of all time just because that's that's a story structure that is used quite often kind of just like telling a journey through vignettes and short stories uh, that tell an overarching narrative. Uh, there was a Japanese folktale called The Lady Who Loved Insects. Uh, pretty clear <laughs> inspiration. Uh, and, then, and then obviously some big uh, fantasy and sci-fi fiction, you know, uh, stuff like Lord of the Rings, and stuff like Dune, even, uh, <laughs> coincidentally. Uh, I'm reading Dune, and this is heavily inspired by it. Um, people wearing gas masks, people living in a dangerous area, um, oh, and, like, you know, a lack of water. Like, all, all of these things. Um, but there was a real-world inspiration as well, and that was the mercury poisoning of Minamata Bay. Uh, Miyazaki was inspired by how uh, nature thrived in this location, despite it being filled with poison. <laughs> um, and he used this as a jumping-off point for his toxic post-apocalyptic setting. He had difficulty adapting a manga that was, you know, currently unfinished <clears throat> at the time, 16 chapters long. Uh, into a feature film. But he eventually crafted a screenplay and set about making it with Takahata and Topcraft animation. And the result is a pretty great movie that for any other director would be one of their best, if not their best film. I think for Miyazaki, it's one of his worst, which is like saying worst is a is is not the word you want to use. Least incredible, I guess, <laughs> would be what I would say. Um, you know, there's there's not enough you can say about this man's breadth of work. Uh, but in in true uh, Miyazaki fashion, I like how he kind of like goes ahead and uh, there's never like a super clear villain. There's just humans that are misguided, I suppose. Um, 
it, it's interesting because it, it always seems like you know, except for like a few movies, there's never like a clear black and white portrayal of your heroes and villains. <clears throat> I guess Cagliostro is an exception, is what I was trying to get to there, because like you have a clear villain in that, <laughs> but um. Here, while the Talmikians, and, and in particular their leader, who is, uh, fuck, I have a list of character names here, uh, Kushana, the, uh, the badass, like, suit of armor lady, with, like, you know, possibly three missing limbs, we know at least one. I think it's three, because she has, like, yeah, she has, like, you know, kind of like a Darth Vader thing going on, you know, like, like, she got a metal leg and another metal leg. And then a metal arm, and we never see like that armor come off. That that kind of suggests to me that like. Okay, so we're we're we died. You were talking about uh, her legs, <laughs> like the armor and stuff. Jusby's like computer is dying more than the the Nausicaa's dad. What the fuck? Um, right. yeah. Uh, whatever. She got she got one arm, and that's it. So, like, yeah, like, you kind of, like, give a sense of, like, um, why she feels the way she does about the bugs, because they, like, fucked her up at one point in her life, right? Uh, like, he gives you, like, understanding of most of the characters that would be villains in the hands of a different director, usually. Uh, but Miyazaki usually has, like, a little bit of a, you know, like... Par- partially inspired by the real world kind of like you know not everything's black and white kind of uh flavor to his stuff and i appreciate it it's it's a different spin on these kind of things you know yeah i uh yeah the toys Especially when you see like plenty of you're talking about most like most plots in general. Yeah, that's very straightforward. Good versus evil, Um, like things like Star Wars, particularly something like this, which is like yeah, and like like this fantasy style, like high fiction stuff like that. A somewhat simple story when you're just looking at the basics of it. Uh, which we were talking about. So, like, after they come in and kill her dad and take over, you kind of get, like... uh, It kind of shifts to, like, uh, the forest again, right? And uh, she meets... uh, Asbel who's, like, a young kid who's trying to get revenge on the Talmikians, and he, like, shut, blows them all out of the sky, right? Along with, like, other people from, like, his village. So there's, like, a third village. Yeah. Uh, Pejite, I think. Oh, sure. I, I got stuff written down, because, <laughs> you know, again, it's all, like... It's a lot. It's just yeah. words, you know? <laughs> um... And, you know, this is, like, another kingdom that was, like, I I think, like, the basics of what's going on is they had something that could be used to resurrect and or create 
one of the beings that destroyed the world a thousand years ago. And the Talmikians want it so that they can use it instead. You know, it's basically like a metaphor for nukes. <laughs> if we're going to just talk about it in that respect, basically, you know. Some kind of, like, doomsday weapon, so, like, all the countries want it, obviously. Yep. Uh, it's... What a fascinating film. I, uh... I'm changing topics a little bit here, because... I just want to talk about, like, because a lot of this, uh, there's a lot of environmental storytelling yeah. going on in Nausicaa. Um, like, it's, it's definitely something you want to, like, pay attention to. There's, uh, you get a lot of your world building in through just, like, watching Nausicaa, like, travel around or, like, the different places she visits. And you get a really big breath of, like, the different areas and locales and, like, what happened to this place, in a way. Yeah, um, it's all incredibly fascinating. And plus, like it's gorgeous. Even even like this this early kind of animation still looks fantastic. Like I, I love the way the bugs look; they're all fucking awesome. Yeah, the, uh, I kind of wish they weren't bugs. I'm not a huge fan of bugs, but uh, it's still like cool designs. Well, that's uh, that's kind of the idea, right? Yeah, I suppose that's kind of the idea, is it's, like, something that's, like, repulsive to, like, the layman. But, like, you know, just because it repulses you doesn't mean it's, like, inherently evil, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, really fucking cool. You know, you got all these, like, big nations that uh, are basically warring with each other. And then Nausicaa and her, like, mostly peaceful village, like, kind of caught in the middle of this conflict basically, and uh, they're going to do something that will piss off the bugs so bad that they probably will kill everybody. So that needs to be stopped, and that's kind of like the driving force for like the, the end of the movie, I suppose. Yeah, and that's when you hit your climax. Yeah. When she, this plane unfolds. And, uh, she needs to get back to her valley, because at this point she's like very far away uh, to warn everybody or try to stop it when that doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah. Man, that, that, that shit's crazy. Yeah. yeah it's really cool uh, seeing especially like once again you have like really good animation for its time. Um, showing through here. I think for I think for any time, this is great animation. Like regardless yeah. of it being an old movie or not. Yeah, it's seeing like, especially like when you have like all those moving parts happening at once. Like that's that stuff's hard to stuff's really hard to animate. And the fact that they did it in like nine months too is kind of crazy. Yeah. I didn't know that going in. That's fucking mm. wild. Uh, I feel well, bad for those workers. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, something interesting is that one of the many animators who worked on this uh, was a man that you may recognize the name of, uh, Hidekiano, who, uh, you know, his big sequence in this movie was he animated the goopy 
melting uh, god warrior who attacks the bug stampede with his like mouth laser fucking thing uh, before dying because it was like I don't know birthed too early or some weird nonsense. Uh, but it's a really crazily well animated sequence, and uh, Ano goes from this to make his own animation studio, Gainax, and writing and directing uh, quite possibly the most like critically acclaimed anime of all time in Neon Genesis Evangelion, which is kind of crazy uh, that kind of came out of this. Uh, but, you know, I guess, like, you know, creation breeds creation and all that. Uh, I still haven't watched Eva. I need to do that one of these days. I know Very it's, good. I know it's like, the most influential the anime to probably ever exist. Uh, it's tier. Yeah. For sure. Uh, I definitely recommend it. So, what, uh, what, give me something, like, or one or, like, even a couple of, like, your favorite scenes of the film. Yeah, well, that's probably pretty easy. You know, that segment's up there, just in terms of, like, good animated sequences. That, like, the design of the uh, clearly not well-put-together big giant god thing uh, is interesting. Um, you know, I, I think my favorite part is, like... I don't know, it's hard to, like, pinpoint exact things, but, like... A lot of, like, the character work, where they, like, show you, like, who Nausicaa is by, like, her actions. Like, you know, she saves, um, fuck, I just fucking said her name, Kushana in the Poisoned Forest, despite the fact that, you know, this is the person that ordered the killing of her dad and stuff. Like, it's just, you know, little moments like that are cool. Uh, when she has the, like, big gun... And, like, <laughs> she's not going to murder those two guys who just shot her down, but, like, she uses it to, like, get them to shut up <laughs> uh, is pretty great. Um, yeah. And also, like, the one time you get to see Lord Yupa be the swordsman that he's described as. Like, he's described as, like, one of the best, like, fighters in the, I guess, world that's left... Uh, but you don't really see a lot of that throughout the movie. You just get to see it that one time on the airship, and it's like a great sequence. Love that. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, how about you? Um, well, I kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but I think uh, one of the strongest sections of this film as a whole is just its intro. Um, the way it like plops you into this environment uh, and like a mostly silent, you know, besides like Nasca talking to herself. Um, intro where it literally gives you like kind of the breath of like what you're dealing with in the world you're about to witness very quickly yeah very quickly get into okay like she's scavenging um and uh the place isn't safe there's bugs and but it like the full breath of that is like really really cool um I like the uh I'm, I'm always a big fan of like uh, like scenes in films that just kind of like show you the world 
It don't have to be like this ridiculous exposition dump on you. Yeah, that's always preferable, right? Like, you don't want the characters to literally just go like, oh, and ohm, that is this bug thing that lives in the forest, and we fear it, but we shouldn't. Like, you don't need to, like, you don't need to, like, describe your stuff. Like, you need a natural way to describe it, and that's hard to do sometimes without a bunch of exposition, especially when you're creating an entirely, like, unfamiliar location like this it's definitely it's definitely difficult i think they pulled it off really well in this movie and, like talking about the like, and stuff like that how like right from the get um they show up very early and they're very ominous and like yeah he does a good so job by at having like the first big action sequence being how difficult it is to drive away one of the angry things and that sets up your conclusion where there's like a hundred thousand of them you know, yeah, it's, it's easy. Set up and pay off, you know. You gotta do that. But very effective. <laughs> right. You surprised me films can't do it effectively. Well, yeah, obviously. We've talked about many, we've talked about many of them on this program. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, it's just terrible, but, yeah, man, I don't know, I, I love this film. I think it, like, just like pretty much every film we're going to watch here in this section of Get a Jump Show, I wholeheartedly recommend it that like literally everybody and their mother watch it. Yeah, in, in a weird way, I think that means that we have less to say about it than like if the movie was bad, but it's not. So like we're just gonna keep saying like it good. Yeah, <laughs> um, fine, you know. Yeah, no, that's and fine. With, it's a good change of pace. Also, there's a there's a little bit less to talk about with it because I said like like I was saying before, there's a lot of visual storytelling going on. Yeah, um, there's and the, and the story is simple. There's a lot of moments where like it just like the movie shuts up and looks pretty, if if you know what I mean. Like like it kind of yeah. just like like people stop talking, and it's just kind of like look at this stuff that we drew, and it and it just shows you the cool environments and stuff. And like I love that shit. That's fine. That's great. Um, That's great. I can see some people thinking this movie is slow and boring, but those aren't people that like uh, I I would respect their film opinions on necessarily you know what i mean <laughs> like right, exactly. um it's not always the most exciting movie but i feel like it still has like a it's fair amount of like the action and excitement throughout the but entire the, thing the scene where the uh with the, the giant like person carriers get shot down and everything is really cool yeah um it's a, it's a great act there's plenty of great action scenes in this movie it's, it's really cool um i like it a lot right Oh, another thing I, I, I really like, and I feel like we haven't mentioned yet, is the score. Which, um, yes. this is the first Miyazaki movie to be scored by Joe Hisaishi, or Hisashi? I don't know how to say his name. It's, uh, it looks like Hisaishi. There's another I in there, so it's not Hisashi, probably. Anyway, so he would continue to score all of Miyazaki's films throughout the entirety of his career. Uh, so, knowing that, this guy is like a god because the music in Miyazaki's movies are like always really on point and always great. Now, this one definitely feels like a product of the 80s, which is not a bad thing. Uh, you get like a lot of synth and uh, kind of score throughout it. Uh, there's times when it goes more orchestral uh, with these like beautiful pieces of music but i i kind of really like these kind of like 
John Carpenter synths going on in this movie a little bit. Yeah, uh, cool. it's it kind of it's neat. It it fits the uh, the tone of like you're looking at a strange world that you've never seen before really well. Um, yeah, I agree. It's a good ass score. I like it a lot. Excellent, excellent. Um, so springboarding off of that, how'd the movie do? How'd the movie do? How'd it do? It it like, do. Yeah. Um. You know, it's hard to talk about it in in terms that make sense to me and you, the the filthy white people. But um, <laughs> it uh, it um, in the stats I looked up, uh, against a budget of 180 million yen, it made 1.48 billion yen. Which, I mean, I don't know how much that is in dollars because I'm an idiot. But I know that like like yen is. When you see a lot of it, it's not as impressive, usually, because it's it's a weird currency to us, not to them, obviously. And uh, but it made a 1.72 million dollars internationally. Uh, it was a critical success. Um, now, now I got a Rotten Tomato score for it of 89%, but you got to kind of understand that that's only based on reviews from a much later date, of course, because we should probably talk about the dubs. You know, and uh, what went into those? Because that's obviously what we watched. I, I think it needs to be said. I suppose. I, I I don't know. Is there a big debate on sub or dub for Miyazaki, or not? I feel like you should just watch the, the dubs because they're good. There's uh, a lot less of a debate because the dubs are usually so well done. Yeah. Miyazaki films that like people don't tend to worry about it. Right. I I mean I I can understand that debate for like a lot of things. You know, like Akira has one of the worst dubs of all time, uh, <laughs> but like, and there's not much you can do about it. Um, uh, so, speaking of which, this also had a terrible dub at first uh, when it was released in the U.S. in 1985. It was with a dub produced by Manson International. No, not that Manson. <laughs> anyway, uh, the film was heavily edited and retitled Warriors of the Wind. Uh, now, this version cuts nearly a half hour from the runtime, changing multiple plot lines as a result. Uh, for instance, apparently, due to a lot of the cutting out of certain scenes and certain lines of dialogues... Um, the Ohm are portrayed as actually evil monsters, thereby completely damaging the entire point of the movie <laughs> and the entire like tone of it. Uh, so this, combined with poor translation in general led to Miyazaki enacting a strict policy that none of his films were allowed to be edited when being localized to other regions. So when you're watching a film of his, there is no chance that any content was excised in any way. Uh, the, the dub may add something here or there to make the line make sense for American audiences, and how they speak, as opposed to 
a Japanese audience, but you're going to have that with any good dub that knows what it's doing. Um, so, I'm, in a way, it's a good thing that the first dub of a Miyazaki film was shit, because it led to there never being a shit one again, basically. Yeah. And uh, so the more familiar dub for Nausicaa, the better dub, is produced by the Walt Disney localization studio and was released in 2003. Uh, it's weird to think that a true dub for his second film did not exist until the success of films released much later in his career, like Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away. But that's kind of how these worked to a degree. Um, some of them had dubs that came out earlier, but some of them didn't really exist until it was time to come out on DVD. You know? Uh, weird to think that the world was deprived <laughs> of Miyazaki's movies uh, at large. Uh, for years. But I guess that's kind of the case with all anime until, like, the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, for whatever reason. Anyway. Like the other Disney dubs, uh, it's really good. <laughs> very, yeah. very high quality. Tons of noteworthy actors providing voices. Uh, I'm going to go through them now. Uh, not everybody but I think the ones that are important. Uh, Nausicaa herself is voiced by Alison Lohman, who is actually not in that much. Uh, her main, besides this starring role that she's remembered for, is a, a Sam Raimi movie that I've never seen called Drag Me to Hell. She stars in that. Never seen that movie. Um, don't know if she's good in it or not. Don't know if it's a good movie. But, uh... She did a great job as Nausicaa. Um, I, I, I thought that she would be a more recognizable actress to me because her voice sounds familiar. But apparently it isn't. <laughs> uh, much more immediately recognizable as a clear famous man is Lord Yupa, voiced by Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Um, Professor X and... Picard himself, uh, who is the perfect fucking choice for that character. It works really well. <sighs> you know, he's gonna voice old wise men until he dies. You know, that's his oh, yeah, that's his so role cool. in life. <laughs> I hope he never stops. Uh, well, he will eventually. <laughs> uh, that day's not gonna come to reasonable forever. Man, can't say shit like that. Uh, Kushana is Uma Thurman. Um, you know, from such famous films as Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill and Batman and Robin. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only reason I was naming movies she's been in. People know who Uma Thurman is. I just wanted to shout out uh, her great performance as Poison Ivy. Uh, go listen to episode 69 of the Get and Job show if you get a chance. Anyway, um, she she does a great job. She has a good voice. It, I, like I could recognize it was Uma Thurman right away. You know, 
Um, one I didn't recognize right away, but knew sounded familiar, is Chris Sarandon, who plays uh, Kuratawa, who is a character we haven't really talked about yet. That's like Kushana's like second in command guy, who is like probably the most um, unlikable character in the movie, but it's kind of played for laughs for most of it. Uh, he's just kind of like such an asshole. <laughs> that like you can't help but like kind of just laugh at it. Yeah. Um. He's he's just kind of like these stereotypical like in it for himself, completely like lackey that would rather be the king kind of character. You know. Yeah. Um. So Chris Sarandon is the main dude from The Princess Bride, and the voice of Jack Skellington from The Nightmare Before Christmas. And that's where I recognized his voice from. Uh, like, you can hear it in that. Uh, only the speaking voice, I should say. Because uh, Jack Skellington's a bit of a weird character in that he's voiced by a different person when he is singing than when he is speaking. But, like, you can definitely hear that, like, this character is voiced by that guy. Um, singing voice is Danny Elfman, by the way. That's... <laughs> That's yeah. Anyway, um, Mito, who is, uh, I guess, like for all intents and purposes, Nausicaa's like uncle. Although I don't think by blood. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, Eye Patch Man, <laughs> that is uh, cantankerous and old. Uh, good character as well. This, this movie has a great like supporting cast uh, all around. Um, that's Edward James Olmos from Miami Vice and Blade Runner. Uh, it's crazy the names they get for these. Um, Asbel, the uh, young uh, Pejite warrior child she meets, I suppose. Uh, that's Shia LaBeouf, who... Uh, uh, n- not not great news about him in the news lately. Not, not, not great news for Shia LaBeouf <laughs> in the news lately. But uh, fuck it, this was in 2003 when when any controversy was far removed from Shia LaBeouf's name. Now yeah. it's now it's like nothing but this is like even Stevens era Shia LaBeouf. Like that's probably why he's that's probably why he's probably why he's in it, because Disney, you know. He does he does a good job for what it's worth. I, I suppose. Yeah, he's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I uh for for all these actors like I'm not referencing all of them but for every single one I wrote down like stuff they're in uh like it's on the back of a DVD box <laughs> and for Shia LaBeouf I wrote Transformers Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and that's all I wrote <laughs> he's been in a little more than that but I'll be as mean as possible fuck it <laughs> I don't know uh we get a brief Mark Hamill here as the mayor of Pejite. Clearly Mark Hamill, distinctive. You can hear him from a mile away. Uh, and then uh, one that really threw me for a loop because I recognized the voice but could not tell who it was. But I should have known it is uh, the Obaba, the old uh, blind woman who like you know knows all the prophecies and shit. That's Tress McNeil, who is Dot from Animaniacs, and uh, Mom from Futurama, uh, and uh, 
and and is in like every cartoon ever made, basically. Uh, Trust McNeil's great. I I should have realized that was her. Uh, like, basically, in ev- if you've heard like an old cranky woman in something in a cartoon, probably Tress McNeil doing an impression. Like <laughs> it's it's yeah. Um, and I think that's about it as far as that cast goes. And I guess as far as our, our opinion on the movie goes, is there anything else you want to add? That sounds good. It's a pretty good film. <laughs> Highly recommend it. It's on HBO Max. I think that's a thing that like we should probably like, you know, I don't need to shill for HBO Max. Uh, in fact, I encourage you not to watch Wonder Woman 1984 because it is not good. However, <laughs> I will say, if you want a way to watch every single Miyazaki movie except Castle of Cagliostro, get HBO Max because they're all on there. And that's, you know, a pretty good way to, to get them without spending thousands of dollars because... Before that, they were available on jack shit as far as streaming services go before HBO Max. Uh, so, yeah. I'm honestly surprised they're not on Disney Plus because Disney releases them with their localization team. You know, like, ostensibly they own the American rights to Ghibli. So, but for whatever reason, it's not on Disney Plus, but it's on. HBO Max. Maybe that deal was finalized before Disney Plus was a thing. It's very possible because, you know, I'm sure HBO Max was in the works before, you know, like way back when Disney Plus was also in the works, too. Uh, But anyway, uh, it's good that there's a place to watch them. Uh, nothing is a bigger pet peeve of me with this show more than not being able to go watch the movie <laughs> on a streaming yeah. service. Yeah, I funny. have Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max. I even have Peacock. I don't want Peacock, but I have it. Uh, <laughs> and if your movie isn't on those, the fuck are you doing? What am I paying money for? <laughs> Don't make me go rent Freddy vs. Jason, you piece of shit. <laughs> Put it on something. Good God. Anyway. <laughs> um, what do we think? Our current Ghibli ranking is just Castle of Cagliostro. I put it underneath Castle of Cagliostro. I think I would as well. Uh, I don't have a clear reason for doing so, though. I just think because uh, they're they're both excellent. Yeah, I just think uh, it's slightly better. I don't know. It, it's just a little bit more entertaining. I think Nausicaa has Cagliostro beat in terms of setting and how like the environments look. Even though there's a lot of impressive stuff in Cagliostro as well, but I think Cagliostro is just a much more fun romp of a movie than Nausicaa, which. <clears throat> sometimes a more serious movie will like get the props from me for being better, but I don't know. I think, I think in this instance, I just enjoyed Cagliostro more. 
but not yeah. by a lot. By like no, maybe a fraction. Thin yeah. It's a thin margin for sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm gonna write it down because this is a list with many movies in it, so. I believe I need to keep track of it so that I don't uh, fuck up. Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. Uh, in my notes, uh, I always title the movie incorrectly on purpose. Uh, and I called this movie... <laughs> this is really stupid. This one's like the dumbest one I've ever done. Little, Little Nausicaa X... And the Valley of the Old Town Road is what I wrote down. That is awful. You should be ashamed. I agree. <laughs> I should be gunned down in the street for writing that. But I did it. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, well, uh, with that, uh, this, I think that should about do it for us, huh? Yeah, next week is uh, Castle in the Sky... Castle in the Sky. Not Howl's Moving Castle. That's later. Castle in the Sky. Miyazaki likes planes or things that fly and castles. Uh, probably every single thing he's made has both. I think. Should we keep a running tally of planes and castles? If you want to. Uh... Alright, so, like, in Castle of Cagliostro, there's the Count's plane, mm-hmm. and I think that's it. Yeah. But it's still shown quite prominently, and figures into an action sequence or two. And then, obviously, in this, Nausicaa has her glider thing, and then there's, like, all the other, like, warring nations have flying things. Uh, obviously... Castle of Cagliostro has a castle in it, otherwise it wouldn't be fucking called that. And then... I mean, Nausicaa kind of has... a castle, right? Like, where she lives? Or is that even like a... I mean, it's kind of like a castle, right? I guess. It's It's just kind of like a dilapidated primitive castle. It's not like an extravagant one. But it is a fortress with, like, a drawbridge of some sort. Uh... Because, like, there's that scene where they're, like, <laughs> the fucking, like, three village dumbasses steal that tank. That's a good scene. Forgot to mention that one. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it's a great movie. I will report back once I read the manga. And I'm really excited to get this, like, uh, I, <laughs> this uh, big, giant, uh, hardcover, two-volume set. Uh uh, it's funny, uh, the only other uh, manga I've bought in this manner was a long time ago I bought High School of the Dead. Uh, <laughs> a big, giant color volume, and uh, basically that is the opposite of Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind. Uh, Miyazaki would be ashamed that these are the two big volume things I own. His and the complete antithesis of what he wants from anime. <laughs> but oh well, that's what I own. I'll put them right next to each other as a, as a joke for myself that I can laugh at when no one's around.
like normal people do, right? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Thank you. Sure thing, buddy. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. All right, I think that'll do it for us here at the Gen and Jump Show. Uh, I'll talk to y'all soon. Heck yeah. Looking forward to more Miyazaki. Yep. Bye. Bye.